Open your Bibles with me now to Romans chapter 11 as we continue through this glorious epistle. We have been working our way through this for, I don't know, it's got to be close to two years now. The second half will go quicker than the first half, for the record. But if you're getting bored with Romans, I don't know, consider your salvation. (laughs) This is a glorious gift that the Lord has given to his church. Now, if you're just bored with me, me too sometimes. Romans chapter 11, we are picking up in verse 16, which is where we left off last week. Hear now the word of the Lord. From the book of Romans. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So then you will say, branches were broken off so so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through the faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God, God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given to us, your church, that through your word we come to to know our God, to hear the voice of our God, that by your Spirit's work through your word, our hearts which were dead in sin have been made to live, our eyes which were blind have been made to see. Our deaf ears opened to hear your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish all of your good purposes this morning through your word, by your spirit, through the preaching and proclamation of your word. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The truth is, Christians often act like children. Not, not in the good way, not in the childlike faith way that Jesus commends that we ought to act, but in the sinful, immature way of junior high school. Uh, we, we find ourselves doing this. Remember junior high school and high school, especially if you went to Westview. Westview is especially good at this. They, they form cliques, and you know who's in and you know who's out. And there are very clearly defined lines, and it's almost impossible to cross from the out group into the in group. If you don't dress the right way, if you don't have the right kind of hobbies, if you don't live in the right part of town, you are excluded from that exclusive group. And there is this feeling of superiority, this feeling of conceit and arrogance. We are 
better in some ways than they are, and we don't need to associate with anyone who's not like us. Well, the Jews were once the in crowd. They were once the insiders. They considered themselves to be the superior people. Not just morally, the superior race of people because of the blessings that God had given to them, but they had become blinded by their pride, ultimately rejecting their own Messiah. They didn't think they needed a Savior to save them from sin. They just thought they needed a Savior from the evil Roman Empire. And so they clung to their man-made traditions and rejected Christ. And because of that rebellion, because of that idolatry, God judged them. And in doing so, God opened the way, as we saw last week, of salvation for the Gentiles. That's, that's you and I, if you're not Jewish by heritage. But then some of the Gentiles, after being able to come into this glorious salvation, began to look at the Jews now and say, well, I don't think they deserve to be in. I think they deserve to be excluded now from the group all the time. It's the same trope we see in high school. You see, you see someone come from this, this outsider group, and somehow they make it into the insider group. And they become the most ruthless gatekeepers that the insider group has, looking at everyone else who has the, the same aspiration they had to one day be in this group and saying, no, you're excluded. You can't, you can't come in. Well, that's what the Gentiles began to do. Some of the the Gentiles thought the Jews don't have any right to become partakers of the new covenant. Roman culture despised the Jews, and that thinking seems to have crept into the church as well. They wanted to kick the Jews out. They wanted to marginalize them. Gentile Christians thought we are God's new ethnic favorite, just anyone who's not Jewish. And the proof is, just look around, look at how few Jews have come to saving faith. And so our passage today is addressing that kind of foolishness, that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride, that attitude that's going on in the heart. And Paul does that by using an analogy of an olive tree to show how misplaced arrogance is in the church of Christ, how misplaced pride is in the church of Christ. And so we'll, we'll look here in just two main headings. One is the arrogant branches, and the other is the humble branches. First, the arrogant branches. Last week, as in our passage, Paul told us the way that the Jews were going to be included into the church was that God had a plan through his judgment and hardening of the Jews to open the way of salvation to the Gentiles, and then through the Gentiles being saved, the Jews would be provoked to jealousy, and this jealousy would actually cause them to look to Christ for salvation. Paul said in verse 15, their salvation would be a life from the dead. So so the Jews have have been cut off, have been hardened. They are dead spiritually, and they need life. And Paul says this is how God has intended to do it. And now he makes this analogy to prove his point. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul uses two illustrations here in verse 16. There's, there's a lot of opinion about what his illustrations um, mean and the significance of these, but from the context, it's pretty clear what Paul is trying to say. He wants to say to the Gentile Christians, after telling them how how all of this has worked, he wants to now say to them, you must not be arrogant. 
And, and in particular, their arrogance was directed against the Jews. You must not be arrogant against the Jews. In other words, the Jews are the whole reason that you're saved. If you're arrogant to them, if you exclude them, if you marginalize them, you cut off your own legs. It's foolishness. And he, he wants them to always be mindful of the root of the church. To never, don't forget where these promises originated. Don't forget to whom they were originally delivered. Don't forget through whom this, this hope that you have now come into possession of was first set forth to the world. Don't forget who you have inherited your legacy from. And he spells this out in verses 17 and 18 by expanding them this analogy of the tree. Verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So Paul gives this analogy of, of this olive tree. And the olive tree represents true Israel, the people of God, God's chosen people, a people Paul told us a, a few verses back, a people chosen by grace. And there are only two types of branches in this tree. There are natural branches, that representing the Jews, and there are wild olive shoots who've been grafted in, that representing all the rest of us, the Gentiles. And so Paul is using this picture to drive home the point to the arrogant Gentiles, you would not exist as God's people apart from the Jews. So you need to be humble. You need to turn away from your arrogance. Verse, verse 17, he says that only some of the branches were broken off. This is the first reason you ought not look at the Jews and exclude them and say, now we're God's favorite and that's all there is to it. Paul says some of the branches were broken off. Not all of Israel has been cast off. God saves the elect. God has a remnant chosen by grace. And Paul has, has already told us previously, just look at my life. I'm a Jew by birth. And I belong to Christ. Look at, look at this remnant of believing Jews. Secondly, he portrays Gentiles as not the natural olive branches. Instead, you're wild shoots that are grafted in. Paul, Paul wants them to see, like, there's nothing about you that's so spectacular. It's not that here was Israel and now, like, we're the new and better and, and we're, we're doing far better. No, not at all. You're not even the natural branches. Third, he points how the root of the olive tree. In, in other words, all the promises of the Old Testament, the Jewish Messiah, on and on, on how, how, how these things support and nourish the tree. That, that, that is, this, this root, these promises of God is what gives support to the, the tree. And who did this come through? Gentiles, just remember, came through the Jews, came through them. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, salvation is from the Jews. That's what he meant. It came through them. They were the chosen old covenant people of God who God delivered all of these glorious revelations and promises to. And on the basis of that, Paul says to the Gentiles, do not be arrogant. Remember the truth of your situation. Remind yourself of reality and turn from your arrogance. 
The, the, the truth is, though, just like these Roman Christians, and, and we can do this anytime we look at, at the writings of Paul or, the, or, our, our, or uh, even the accounts of, and stories we have in Scripture, we look back sort of through the corridor of time and we go, boy, they were missing it. Weren't they? These Gentiles, God saved them by grace, and now they're judging the Jews and becoming arrogant. The truth is, we're tempted to these exact same errors. We're tempted to these exact same sins. Sectarianism, separating ourselves from other people and saying we're better somehow than, than they are. The racism we see going on here, we are tempted to that sin. All of mankind is. The arrogance, the forgetting of grace. The truth about grace is grace crushes pride, if we understand what grace is. That I, I deserve nothing but judgment from God, and God chose instead in Christ to pour the riches of his mercy and blessing upon me that crushes our pride. Pride grows when we forget what grace is. When we forget grace, then pride can grow. And so Paul calls them and calls us to remember, don't forget. Don't forget how you were saved. We, we easily forget. We easily forget how it is that God saved us. We easily forget that God shows no partiality. The Jews had forgotten. They thought they were the only ones. And now the Gentiles were falling into that exact same error. The, the Jews had forgotten that they were saved by grace, and now the Gentiles were doing the same thing. And friends, we forget that we have been saved by grace when we look at other sinners out there and we think somehow they're worse than we are. We look at other sinners out there and we think that somehow they're too far gone. They're somehow less deserving than I am of salvation. They, they, they need salvation much more than I needed salvation. We, we forget grace when we think that way. He says in verse 19, Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Have you ever looked at another person, perhaps in poverty, perhaps struggling, maybe on welfare of some form, and you've thought to yourself, or worse yet, said it out loud to another breathing human, they brought this on themselves. They deserve this. And what you're thinking, and you might not say it is, I, on the other hand, have worked very hard and am a very productive citizen of these United States the Bible has a word for that. It's called pride. It, 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 by the way, in case you don't think it's a big deal, is Satan's sin. So it is a big deal. We think we're better. We, we think that we are not equally deserving of the wrath of God. We have forgotten that all that we have and all that we are is by grace alone and not our own doing. We have nothing. We are nothing except that which is given to us from above. We have forgotten grace when we judge other people in that way. And, and the, the ethnic hatred that we see going on between the Jews and the Gentiles, the, all ethnic hatred, which is common to man, is a direct, it is a universal product of conceit, of pride, of sinful hearts. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. We can look in our own nation and our own history of racism or ethnic vainglory is a better term for it. We, we think our ethnicity is the best in the whole world and we look at everyone else through those lenses. We would be fools if we forgot 
our history of bigotry and racism and slavery where black people made in the image of God were treated as something less than fully human. That is our history. And it is wicked. And it is damnable. And it is an abomination. And it still exists. It still exists. White supremacy, this kind of ethnic vainglory, still exists in our world to this day. But it is not, it is not just on white people oppressing other ethnicities. Another form of racism is sweeping our nation today. It's called critical race theory. It is being taught in schools. It is being preached by politicians. It is on every television show and movie that is being made today. It is being taught in conservative churches. It's the same kind of ethnic vainglory. It is racism, but it's a racism that isn't even afraid to show its face. I mean, at least most racists today have the the decency to be embarrassed enough about it to not publicize it. Not, Not so with this. It's racism without apologies. It it basically says there is inherent guilt and evil in whiteness. In other words, it looks at white people made in the image of God and says they are something less than human. Can you see how it's all the same thing? This is common to mankind. It's not common to America. It's common to the world. The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. All of this ethnic animosity is pride, and it is an enemy of the gospel. It is wickedness. Pride's alive and well in in all of our hearts. Lord willing, you, you, you do not deal with this kind of ethnic animosity that we see between the Jews and the Gentiles, and we see so prevalent in our world, but what form does pride take in your heart? Do you forget that you're as bad or undeserving as anyone else? Do you pretend that you're more worthy than others? Do you think that your preferences are more important or more holy than everyone else's? Are you self-sufficient and you need no one to teach you? Now, friends, we must all guard our hearts against pride. Paul said that the Gentiles should not be arrogant. But as he's done then several times in the book of Romans, he anticipates and he answers his opponent's questions to that. So again, look at verse 19. Then you'll say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through the faith. Do not become proud, but fear. So in other words, the the opponent's argument comes back to Paul. The pushback is this. God's actions of including me, that's the Gentiles, and cutting off the Jews and hardening them justifies my conclusion that Jews can't be the people of God. That's the argument. Paul says, don't be, don't be, don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Don't, don't consider that God is done with the Jews. And the Gentile pushback is, well, look, he grafted me in and he cut them out. So that must be the case. Paul says that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. So the first thing that Paul does is he points to the character of God. God's judgments are just always. He didn't cut them off capriciously. He didn't cut them off because he felt like it. God acted in justice against the unbelief of the Jews. 
This is how God always acts against unbelief. It's consistent with his character. And because God is consistent with himself, because he always acts this way against unbelief without partiality, the Gentiles, Paul says, should be fearful and not proud. It's faith, not favoritism, that is the way a person is added into the body of Christ, that a person is brought into this tree. It's faith, belief. We've made this point a number of times in our study of Romans, but let me make it again. Every single one of us is a sinner. We must and can only be saved through faith. So as we hear these statements in Scripture and some of the hard things Paul's been saying to us for a few chapters now, Romans 9 and, and 10 and now chapter 11, that are difficult for us to swallow, make questions swirl in our mind, the simple answer is this, do you want to be saved? Then run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him as God's sufficient Provision to pay your debt of sin. Trust in him as the only way of being justified, being brought into right standing with God, being, being declared righteous before a holy God. Acknowledge your sin. See him as your only hope. And then cry out to him to have mercy on you. This is the only way you will become one of God's children. It's the only way anyone ever becomes one of God's children. It is the only way to become a branch on the olive tree of God's chosen people. By acknowledging that we are unworthy sinners who are deserving only of judgment. And then seeing God's mercy in Christ and crying out to God on the basis of Christ's sufficient life and death and resurrection to make you righteous before him. It's the only way. The only way to become a part of this tree for anyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is to be grafted in. And that's how God does it. Paul is very clear about who is and who isn't part of the tree and why it is that they are or, or not are not part of the tree. Those who believe are part of the tree. Those who do not believe are removed. We stand by faith, not works. Not by ethnicity. Not being lesser sinners, but by faith alone. It must and can only be by faith because no one is righteous. And our righteousness has to be received as a gift that comes from outside of ourselves. As the old saying goes, faith is the empty hands clinging to nothing but Christ that receives the free gift of God's grace. It's the only way for anyone is to come by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 23 then he says, and even if they, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, speaking of the Jews, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul says, even if these Jews who presently don't believe if they do come to saving faith, they will be included in salvation. They'll be regrafted back into their own tree. And so the issue is not Jewishness or non-Jewishness. The issue is faith 
It's the only way for all people, Jew and Gentile, is to be grafted into this tree by faith alone. And Paul says, if the Gentiles, who aren't even natural olive branches, can be grafted in, how much more will the natural branches be able to be grafted in if they believe? Belief is the issue. Now let me change gears here because we skip down to verse 23 and we skip two verses there. Look at verses 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There is a question that inevitably clutters this text. It's the question of whether a Christian can lose their salvation. That, that question is, is, is brought, in, brought to bear when, when this text is read. Paul uses language of being cut off of the olive tree. We've already explained the olive tree represents God's people. And Paul uses this language of being cut off. And so he makes a couple statements here that make it sound like a Christian who was once united to Christ can then lose that. Having been united to Christ, hidden in him, held in his hand, as we read in in John chapter 6, Christ holds us in his hand and no one can take us out. And then for good measure, he says, the Father holds you in his hand and no one can take you out. And Paul says a couple things here that make it sound like, well, no, you could have been there. And then someone took you out. What do we make of that? He, He says things like, neither will he spare you, provided... You continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What do we make of these statements? I think the first thing we want to keep in mind is that Paul is speaking directly of belief and unbelief. He's not giving a list of sins by which the Christian might lose their salvation. That's usually how we think of it. Somebody sins so much and they lose their salvation. Paul's talking about those who believe versus those who don't believe. Those two categories don't mingle. You believe or you don't. But also remember what Paul has told us so far in Romans. We can't just lift this passage. This is what we we like to do with these controversies. We lift them right out of the book, and we deal with them separately, and we try to figure them out. We can't do that. This comes as part of a much larger statement that Paul is making. What has Paul told us in Romans so far? Just some snippets. He starts off by telling us for three chapters of the desperation of our situation. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We are, Paul, Paul brings us to the edge of this pit and we peer down inside of it with him while he shows us the filth and the immorality and the rebellion that we are living in locked in a jail cell at the bottom of the pit. No chance for freedom and no desire for freedom. He shows us God's universal wrath on all sinners how we could never save ourselves, how we don't even want to save ourselves. And so God acted on our behalf by providing the righteousness that justifies us, that we receive as a free gift by faith, he told us in chapters 3 and 4. Then he went on to tell us of the amazing blessings that are ours in Christ, how we've become inheriting children of God himself. And he he listed all these benefits. And as he lists these, these growing benefits, it adds up to overwhelming assurance of our salvation. We're at peace with God. 
We have access to him. We stand in grace. We rejoice in sure hope, even in trials. We have the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we're beloved children of God. We have the love of God displayed on the cross of Christ, proving that if he is willing to sacrifice his own son in order to justify his enemies, we can be certain that he will most surely glorify his children. Paul shows us time and time again that God through Christ has provided far more for us than Adam lost in sin. He reveals to us the superabounding grace of God towards sinners. And then in chapter 8, Paul gets even more explicit about our assurance. The, the chapter opens with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. The, the greatest argument for the security of our salvation, though, is God's love and his ability to save, his ability, his power to finish what he started. And so in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul gives us this golden chain of redemption, five unbreakable links in the chain of salvation, stretching back from eternity past all the way into eternity future. Those whom he has foreknown, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. No dropouts, no breaks. Eternity past to eternity future. This is followed with, John Stott points out, five unanswerable questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, friends, God always saves his elect. That's Paul's point. And he teaches this doctrine of election not to be controversial. He, he doesn't write this thinking, years from now, Christians will fight about this. They'll leave their churches. It'll be great. It's not why Paul writes this. It's to assure you, Christian, of your salvation. So that your hope is based in Christ and not in you. That, that's why Paul writes this. So the thought that Paul has told us all of that, just to now get to chapter 11 and tell us the complete opposite, does not make any sense whatsoever. He'd be undermining everything he's told us so far in the book. But that doesn't mean we should ignore Paul's warning here. Jesus uses a similar illustration. I think Paul's most certainly alluding to this illustration from Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 1, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. God's people are expected to produce fruit. Genuine believers will produce fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, Galatians 5.22 says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul calls these things the fruit of the Spirit, the singular fruit of the Spirit. We as Christians tend to like compartmentalize those as if we can pick and order off a menu which ones work with us and, and, and don't. I'm doing good with the love, not so good with the self-control. 
No, this is the fruit that God will produce in the life of the Christian. These, these things. And Jesus and Paul both say genuine believers will surely produce fruit. Jesus goes on in John 15 in verse 5 saying, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. We do not bear fruit in order to earn our salvation. We bear fruit because God has saved us. He's given us a new heart, a new mind, a new will, new desires, new, new ability empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey and to bear fruit. And so the Christian will surely bear this fruit. The truth is, though, we, we contribute nothing to the salvation process. God has planted the tree. God has grafted in the branches. God and God alone is the only one responsible for our salvation. You've never heard one story in your life of someone grafting a branch into the tree and later the branch saying, I did this. No, it lays there dead until it's grafted in. Any gospel that says, here's the list of things you need to do and the list of things you need to not do in order to be saved, friends, is a false gospel. Anything that says work harder, say the right things, have more faith, that is an enemy of the gospel. Christians are never commanded to bear fruit. It is assumed that we will bear fruit and we must bear fruit. We are commanded instead to abide in the vine. That's the command to us. Abide in the vine. The, the power of the cross is not, is not the power to change yourself. It's not the power to accomplish good things on your own. It is union with Christ and Him changing you. So we're commanded to abide in the vine and then we will surely bear fruit in keeping with that. Because if there is no fruit, there is no connection to the vine. If your life is not giving evidence of God's Spirit's work in you, it is quite likely that is because your belief is superficial and not genuine. And that does require effort on our part. That, that does require effort. D.A. Carson says this, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness or prayer or obedience to the Scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. That's, that, that, that's our tendency if we coast. It, it does require effort. Salvation is, to use a theological term, monergistic. It's God's work. It, it's, it's God and God alone reaching down to us and saving us. You weren't bobbing in the ocean somewhere, hanging on to a piece of driftwood, hoping that you could maybe make it, and then God reached down and, and helped you, and you grabbed onto him and pulled on and climbed onto the boat. No, you were dead at the bottom of the ocean, 
laying dead on the floor of the ocean, and God all by himself reached down, plucked you out, and gave you life, and placed you on dry ground. Salvation is a work of God alone. Sanctification, however, our becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ, our bearing the fruit in keeping with salvation is synergistic. God initiates and empowers and man responds in the power of the Spirit. But this is still entirely God's work. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says, you, work out your salvation. That's effort. That's work. That's intentionality. Because it's actually God working in you when you do that. Both to will, in other words, any desire you have to work for God's good pleasure is God's work in you. And to work. Whatever your hands find to do for the glory of God is his work in you for his good pleasure. But Paul's word to us is, we don't have to worry about the eternal unseen end of that. Ours is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and this, this statement, fear and trembling, that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to, to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. What happens to those who have placed their faith in anything outside of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation? They're cut off. It doesn't matter if they're a part of the church or a member of a church for 45 years. If you are hoping in something other than Christ, trusting in something other than him, heed this warning from our brother Paul. It is severity you will receive in the judgment. We'll be cut off. It's a real warning. It's a real warning for where our belief is, is located, where it is placed. The same God who stands with Arms wide open, as Paul said in Romans chapter 10, all day long to a disobedient and contrary people. That same God is the one who knows the hearts of men and will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. To those who have never trusted in Christ. And so when we find a warning like this in Scripture, it's not an indication that we should fear losing our salvation. It's actually a gracious gift from God. It is a, a means by which God keeps us. It is a keeping gift that He gives to us. When, when we receive a warning like this in Scripture, the thing that happens in the heart of the genuine believer is that we stand in awe of God. We fear the right kind of fear. People often describe what the Bible's commands for us to fear God as like, it just means you respect him a lot. No, friends, this is God we're talking about. We should fear him. He, he is to be feared. We're also commanded, look, we take the whole counsel of Scripture. We're commanded to, to and instructed to come before him as his sons and his daughters accepted in Christ on the merits of his righteousness. But, oh, if you stand before God on the merits of your own righteousness, what a fearful thing. What a fearful thing to face the severity of God. True believers hear this and we, we tremble at how fragile we are, how dependent on grace we are. 
how crucial the authenticity of our faith is, how urgent it is for us to, to walk in obedience. As Paul says, to make our calling and election sure. In this way, then, the warning serves as a means to keep us from falling. We, we read these things in Scripture and we call on the name of the Lord and say, may it never be true of me. May it never be true of me that I walk in unbelief. May it never be true of me that I look for salvation in some other means than Christ. May it, may it never be that I try to save myself and view myself in such a way that it puffs me up with arrogance like we see here. On the other hand, though, for hypocrites in the church, the pretenders, the ones going through the religious motions, they don't tremble at these warnings. They read these warnings, they hear these warnings, and they assume that they simply do not apply to them. Some of them don't believe these warnings at all. Oh, God would never do that. God would never cut someone off. God would never condemn a soul to hell. God, that's not the God I worship, and it's probably true. It's not the God they worship. But the God they worship isn't the God of the Bible. Others, they believe them, and they just go, well, that's not for me. I wish so-and-so was here this morning to hear this stern word from, from Paul. They could really use it. That's a sign of great danger. It's a sign of great danger and and, and quite possibly a sign that they're not genuinely Christians at all. They've never been converted. They've never been brought from death to life. They don't have the new heart that, that resonates with the Word of God, that, that, that is, is broken by their own sin, that, that trembles before the ma majesty and, and might and glory and grace of God. So Paul says to us, look. Consider these things. Look at God's severity. And look at God's kindness. Let, let the severity of God send us flying to the arms of kindness. Let it, let it deepen our faith in His kindness. Let it, let, it, let it cause us to run to Christ. To lift our eyes off of ourselves. Because when I look at myself, all I see is deserving of severity. I must look at Christ. It's his righteousness I'm depending on. And then let this kindness produce in us fruit in keeping with repentance. Christian, you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let it produce humility. Let it produce love. Let it produce obedience. You dare not think that being saved by faith alone and not by works gives you license to just live any way you want to live. You will prove with your life that you have not been grafted into this tree. Salvation, though, is a gift of grace by faith. Because it's a gift of grace by faith in Christ alone, here's what it means. No sin is too great. No one is beyond God's reach. No one has gone so far that God cannot save them. And it also means, friends, that no one he grafts into the vine will ever be ripped away. That is glorious, glorious news. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, we do read these things, and we confess that, that the things that our brother Paul has had to say to us in these last months have been difficult and challenging and in many ways confusing 
Yet we trust you, and we thank you, Lord, for this revelation you have given us in your word of of your sovereign power. Lord, your power to save, of your holiness, and yes, Lord, of your grace. We rest in you alone. Our hope is in you alone, and I do pray, Lord, that you would use this word as a means to sanctify your people, that we would be, Lord, further humbled, further transformed into the likeness of Christ, further committed to living lives of righteousness that honor you, further committed to work for your kingdom's sake, further committed to be ambassadors of this glorious gospel of the kingdom in a lost and dying world, even in a hostile culture. We pray, Lord, that that your word, your promises given to us would put steel in our spine. And yes, even as we consider the severity of God, that it would give us an urgency to take this gospel to sinners who are in desperate, desperate need. Pray, Lord, that you would use this church to those ends, Lord, that you would make us strong and healthy and fruitful for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.